Please open your copies of God's Word to Psalm number 2, please. Psalm number 2. we'll read that which we have just sung. Psalm number 2. Psalm number 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath sent, said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Amen. doesn't go run out on this sort of tablet. Psalm number two. So we've examined Psalm number one last time with the Lord's help, or at least we've, we've skimmed the surface as we can ever do with the, with, with the text of the scriptures, of course, for there is so much in there and so many connections with other matters and so many doctrines that are, could, could be further opened up. But it is my... Uh, my Intention with the Lord's help that we would have like one evening per psalm. That will certainly not be the case with Psalm 119, probably 22 evenings, but uh, we shall see how far we can go each time and that we would have a, a, a more of, a, of an overview uh, as, we, as we examine uh, the Word of God in the psalms. Psalm 2, it has a twofold connection to Psalm 1. Uh, one one might, you might consider a little bit tenuous. Like Psalm 1, there's no title, there's no human context given, there's no musical uh, um, annotation uh, suggested. There's no human context. It's as if the Holy Ghost, just like with Psalm 1, uh, is wanting to emphasize his authorship of the psalm. Yes, he's the author of all the scriptures, uh, but even though we see this and we say, well, there's no human penman mentioned. Um, we can say that we could see a human side 
because we understand from, from Acts that this psalm is written by David and that it is David who is speaking. David also being the anointed of the Lord uh, around whose kingdom uh, the heathen were subdued. So we can see in, in history something of, uh, of that context, but it's not mentioned in any superscription or any title in this uh, psalm in the slightest. Another link, though, with Psalm 1 is the ungodly that we come across there. You see that the, 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 the ungodly counsel of the ungodly and the, the way of the ungodly, the, 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 the mocking of the ungodly, and then we see that the ungodly are, are fruitless. They are as chaff driven before the wind. They will not stand in judgment, they will, but they will be cast down. Uh, they will not stand ultimately in the glorified congregation of the Lord in heaven. They will not be there, but their way will perish. And immediately after we see that, but the way of the ungodly shall, shall perish, except for the title Psalm 2, we come and see the ungodly again, and yet we see the whole of mankind, a seething mass of, of fallen sons and daughters of Adam uh, being mentioned here. And that is very much something that links the two uh, very closely together. So having mentioned those links and having mentioned that it points to David, but whom does David point to? When we think of the, the greater son of David, it's Christ. It is Christ that is, is very evident in, in this psalm. He's in every psalm, but very clearly evident in this. And that's what we see. King Jesus being referred to again and again. And, and what we do ultimately see is the, is the grace and the mercy of God revealed in King Jesus as peace is offered to these rebels. Peace, wisdom, instruction, atonement, friendship, and all these things uh, that are hinted at in that word, kiss. The Son. So, given the title of this of the message uh, this evening, this Bible study is "Kissing the Son of God." Kissing the Son of God, a very powerful image that we will see and look at briefly in verse uh, twelve. So, in kissing the Son of God, we have four points that I would like to look at uh, with the Lord's gracious help this evening. Firstly, we see a rebellious mankind. That's how the uh, that's the first three verses that we see a rebellious mankind. And how is the rebelliousness uh, emphasised? How is that described to us? Well, we see rebelliousness in their emotions. Man's fallen nature means what? It means that in their very heart, in their emotions, and their, their, their desires, at the very core of their being, are contrary to God. They are against God. They are not for God, but they are against Him. And that's, that's what we read here, that the nations are said to rage. Why do the heathen rage? Literally in the... In the, in the Hebrew, you have the word goyim, the, the nations. Why do the nations rage? the heathen in their totality. And what is a nation then? When we think of the Goyim, we think of the Gentiles or, or, or nations um, in the Old Testament. is really speaking to everybody who's outside of God's people. We know that there are two levels to God's people. Level is maybe the wrong word. You have, you have not all of Israel is Israel. So not all of Israel is Israel. So we have spiritual Israel and we have the nation Israel. And what he's saying is outside of the commonwealth of Israel, we have all these heathens and they rage. 
They rage against it. So this is not a neutrality. This is not a neutral situation. It's not a a laissez-faire, an indifference. They rage against. They protest against in their mass. That's the idea that we have here. Why do the heathen rage? That word rage is really the idea of the noise that you get from mass protest, of voices, of raised voices, of shouts. A tumult is a good word for it. And we see that their, uh, their fallen instinct, and we'll see that when we marry that together with the rulers, their instinct is to depose God. It's to make gods of themselves. Which is exactly what the devil said. It was the lie of the devil. We're seeing that here now introduced as we're looking at the mass of fallen humanity. Fallen, why? Because Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree. But this is all, again, what man desires. It's no different. It's in the heart of everybody that you would speak to. What the devil said, For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, Genesis 3 and verse 5, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. They want to be God. They don't want God. They don't want to submit to God. They want to be God. And of course they want to be God over their neighbor. Nation against nation. Now their deceitful hearts are against God and therefore there is no good in their hearts. So we see their hearts, we see also their thoughts. The people imagine a vain thing, an empty thing, a useless thing, a profitless thing. Well, that seems to work, and uh, not work well, rhyme well with what we understand in Psalm 1. The ungodly are not so, they are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. There's no fruit, there's no fruit abiding in them. They are, they are only chaff, as are their thoughts, chaff. So the desires that we've looked at, well, that will permeate into their character, it'll permeate into their thoughts and into the imagination of, of the mind. And so sinful man is incorrectly driven by these emotions and these desires, as everybody is driven by them. But see that these thoughts, as I mentioned, are are thoughts of chaff, the vain imaginings. They're void of truth, they're void of God, they're void of salvation, they are empty, which is what the essence of that word vain is. Means And I think that describes, if you, if you know anything about history and maybe going all the way back into ancient civilizations, then you, you'll understand something of the vanity of false religion, of, of human philosophy, of, of, of social movements, of political theories of, and political activism, if you want to think today. But that's not a thing that very new. And, and we see that clearly, and I'm going to use that word again, Marxism. But that is one of the greatest anti-Christian uh, forces on earth, next to Roman Catholicism. As to a deeply anti-Christian. But just like Marxism, or what we see expressed in, in Marxism, is this rage and the vanity of thought. Because that's the very bedrock of Marxism. There is no bedrock. <laughs> There's no foundation. If anything, it's a very thin balsa wood. But it's not a foundation to, to rest anything on. It's lies. They have lying premises. They've said the world is like this and the world is like that. And the world used to be like this. But it's all, uh, we even touched upon this in the men's meeting, it's, it, it, it's, it's a lie. It's a lying premise. Uh, and we see that how that has developed itself in many different ways with, with, with Marxism's daughter philosophies. Uh, some of which have been around a long time. 
like uh, feminism. The feminist revolution is, is now, if we consider the time, is about 170 years old. It was the first bastard offspring of Marxism uh, coming forth very soon after. Then the pro proletarian revolution, what's that? As the working classes were told to rise up against the ruling classes and give all your money and give all your authority and give all your everything to the Communist Party. Give it all to Karl Marx, as he would have said. And we know later on we've seen the sexual revolution, socialist Christianity in its many forms, sodomite revolution, the transsexual revolution, the gender ideology, and, and they are all vain things, none of which can take any criticism. It's not as though you can discuss and debate this and you're not allowed to discuss and debate them. Because it is a, 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 a house of cards, it's a tissue of lies, it's a, it's, it's a building without a foundation and, and it doesn't take much of the truth just to push against it and, it and it collapses and that's why you are not allowed to debate these things at university, in the media or anywhere else, certainly not in, in Parliament, can be no debate and that's why we know that totalitarian attitude uh, in the media, in society in general, because the heathen are raging. The people are imagining a vain thing and they keep hold so dearly onto their vain imaginations. God forbid that the, that the, that the light of truth would shine upon these dark areas and release them. You see how the devil is behind all of this? Because it is the devil that blinds the minds and the, and the hearts of everybody. And he is the prince of darkness. He hasn't got a kingdom of light. So you see where all this... These are all the doctrines of devils that we've just touched upon, really, and many others. But they're vain things. They're empty. They're false. And we can be so easily intimidated because you will have a crowd that will rage. Think of, uh, of anybody who would speak against this. You know, and there are certain... Um, uh, conservative voices, or maybe not so conservative, maybe classically liberal voices, and they will say things against these movements, and they will be shouted down, they will be insulted, they will be attacked, they will be threatened. And again, that's what we see. The heathen, they range because they imagine. It doesn't say because, but this is one of the reasons why. They imagine a vain thing, they have false religion, they have false hope. We see thirdly their plans because we see the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And so this carries on from the mass of sinners that we've seen, that the rulers that come forth out of this mass of godless heathen, well they're also godless heathen. But see how better, better organized they are in that they're making, uh, making plans, they, count, they are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, it's true to say there have been ungodly planners uh, throughout history, from very ancient times. It's always been the case. So we, we, if we consider uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had, had his ideas that were against the people of God. He came, the Lord used him, uh, to punish the people of Judah and to bring them into captivity. And he had his plans. You know, God foiled his plans. I think of all the way from Nebuchadnezzar, then 600 BC, uh, all the way to the, the, the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, where I think about the heathen rulers that, that ruled there, the, the, the Medici family, who pretty well ran the Roman Catholic Church for a couple of hundred years. Uh, what about the Renaissance that came? 
and began to bring some light into the situation. And then the so-called and very immodestly titled Enlightenment period, where these men thought they were so enlightened and so wise and had these ideas of science. But all of these, all these plans, all of these ideas, uh, what was their fruit? What was the fruit of the Enlightenment period, the French Revolution? Murder, death, tyranny. And, what, uh, and whom did that inspire? Uh, Marx and Lenin. And no doubt Adolf Hitler took some, some hints from that as well. And bringing it all the way today, we know that there are dif different groups. We know that United Nations uh, is very similar to what we read here. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. Hey, that could be a description of the United Nations that we have now. And this is no conspiracy theory. That's exactly what we have with the United Nations. They, they, they hate Jehovah. They hate Christ. They are against him. And the most, uh, the most tyrannical uh, nations are given uh, full, full partnership with all these other nations that we would think would be less tyrannical. Uh, but, there is, but they support them. They support them financially and politically and legally, even through the United Nations. And we know that the United Nations has all sorts of uh, published plans to bring a world order or to bring different uh, hegemony or hegemony, however you want to pronounce that, a global hegemony uh, over the world, and it will not be a Christian hegemony. It will not be Christian, but it will be an expression of the kings and the rulers and the raging of the peoples. And what unites them then all is rebellion. They're rebelling against the Lord, against Jehovah. They're not rebelling against Islam. They're not rebelling against Buddha. They're rebelling, rebelling against Jehovah himself and against his anointed. When you read the anointed in the Hebrew, that says Messiah. So against Jehovah God and against the Messiah that he has provided. And that word with Messiah in the Greek is where we get the word Christ from. Against Jehovah and against Christ, they rebel. Not rebelling against false religions, because this is a, a work of the devil behind all these people. And what else do we see when we, when we see verse, verse 3 especially? It says, let us break their bands asunder, let us cast away their cords from us. And here we have the the sin-darkened mind that says that the commandments of God are grievous. But the scriptures say they're not grievous. They're good. They're good for you. They're good for society. They're, they're part of your worship of God. That's how you were created to be. To worship the Lord, to obey Him, to have your, your, your spiritual Sabbath rest one day in seven. To be careful of, of blaspheming your God, to honor your parents, not to steal, not to murder, and all these other matters that we have in the commandments, not only on a physical level, but on, a, on, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, in your thoughts that they are to be pure, because it's all good for you, and it, it, and it receives God's blessing. I know we say that the fifth commandment is the first commandment with a, with a, with a promise. But in Deuteronomy 5, it goes on to say that when his people keep all of his commandments, oh, that they would be blessed, that they would be blessed with a long life in the land which they are going in to possess. Almost exactly the same wording that we have in, in the fifth commandment. But these, these don't see it that way. They can't see it that way because their desire is for sin. And we know that sin is the transgression of the law. 
And so that's what drives them. It's a madness. It's a madness and it's a sickness. And that's why the word rage is such a fantastic translation um, of the authorized uh, translators. They're raging. They are mad with sin and they're sick with sin. And so they're against the restrictions of the moral law. They're, They're against the truths of God's claims upon them. But you know what that even makes them even more furious? Is they're against God's word, against God's plan of salvation. They're against God's Christ, God's given, the God given Redeemer. It's how far it goes in their madness and their rebellion. So that's the rebellious mankind that Psalm 2 opens up with. But then we come to verse 4 and we see something different. We see a regal Jehovah. A regal Jehovah sitting on his throne. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. That's his reaction. And the Lord shall have them in derision. See, this is holy mockery. See how in the first psalm that we saw unholy mockery? There in verse 1, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, those that scorn and mock things that they do not understand and do not want to understand. So we see that, that derision, that, that laughing of God, first of all, that he laughs at them, he, he mocks them, he puts them down. He's not intimidated and he's not upset in the slightest. He's laughing at them and he's, and he's mocking at them. In the same way that sun is not mocked by someone who strikes a match on earth. He doesn't look at the sun as it were, he's not looking at the match and think, oh, I'm intimidated in some way. Look at the brightness, the furious brightness of that match. Not in the slightest. It's not even seen by the sun as it were. The sun is so bright and so glorious and so full of strength and energy, the match is nothing. I mean, uh, even the image of, a, of, of, of an ant, you know, raising up his fist uh, against, against, uh, against an elephant is about to stand upon it. Elephant hasn't even noticed as it were. And of course, God knows all things. There's a difference. But just the puny, bald fist of all these rebellious people, it doesn't upset him. It doesn't touch God, as it were. He's enthroned on heaven. His throne is an eternal throne that never moves. So the breathings and the threatenings and, and the lies of these people does not do anything as much as they would say. He mocks them now. And when he has cast them into the lake of fire, he will continue his mocking. The Lord shall have them in derision. Revelation 21 and verse 8 gives us this. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The mocking laugh of a holy but wrathful God because it says when we see the danger having seen the derision is then he shall speak unto them in his wrath he'll speak unto them in wrath he will condemn them the question is well how does God speak to them in his wrath if we're reading this this psalm could, could we make up something up well we don't have to make it up we just go to the scriptures and we know there are plenty of places where the Lord rebukes uh, uh, not only his own people, but all the heathens. He sent, he sent the times um, prophets out, not into, only into Israel and Judah, but also into Syria and to other places also, condemning them, rebuking them, even being merciful in his rebukes. Remember Jonah and Nineveh. 
and then have a, a, a cesspit of, 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 of many of the things that we've already looked at. Well, we could say, in general, God speaks to everybody through providential judgment. The child that has rebelled against their parent to such a, a gross degree dies in a car wreck. Providential judgments. The wrath of God, because God will not be mocked. More specifically, God speaks... Uh, not just in his wrath, but also in his wrath through the scriptures. Very clear words that we have speaking, spoken to us, spoken to everyone. But I would suggest even more specifically in the words that we're about to read. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his, sh- in his sore displeasure. And I, I said that vexing is something of the providential judgments of God. Why? Well, we see, we see in verse 3 that they want to reject his, his moral law, the, the bands of the law. They want, to, they want to tear them apart. They want to be free to sin. They want to be free from God's authority, and that can never be the case. Having rejected God, having rebelled against God, and having reject, rejected his Christ... So we see the Lord then, he goes on to make it very clear. Having seen the regal Jehovah on his throne, looking down upon mankind, laughing at their foolishness, but then coming and to reveal something. He will speak unto them in his wrath. But here we have his wrath. He says, I will declare the decree. So how, when declaring this decree... Beforehand, we get to the decree. He said, I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So his, his part of that wrath is setting them straight. You are not king. The devil is not king. None of your rulers or your kings or anything but temporary kings. I have set my king upon my holy hill. It is revealed decree that we see, firstly, the succession that he has in his answer to rebels. A succession is revealed. Yet, but, however, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. There's one true king. One true king of kings. And it's the only king. And he has been appointed by God and he has been crowned by God. And where has he been crowned? That's what we see. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, the heavenly Zion. He's crowned. Now, you might want to say, when was he crowned? Well, we're starting to tip our toes into eternal water when we're examining this decree. The eternal decree of the Father and the Son. So, certainly we could say, in eternity, according to the eternal decree of God, what God says in eternity is as good as done and fixed. And there are a number of expressions in the Scriptures that would, that would help us to understand what the eternal God has decreed in eternity will come to pass and is, and is as good as done because it is an eternal truth. It's an eternal truth. The eternal decree wasn't, as it were, spoken at one time in eternity because eternity is a constant. But in the eternal life and mind of God, and it's very difficult for us to understand, being creatures of time... He crowned him in eternity. But more so we understand in time when the Son of God becomes man 
and he's sent and he has given and he's on earth and he has worked that work of salvation he has received the wrath of God he has been vexed in God's sore displeasure against his sinning people but it's been put upon Christ and when he has succeeded in in all of this and after 40 days after his resurrection he ascends into heaven and what we then understand from Hebrews 1 and verse 3 is he he has ascended and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and that's where we in time might understand something of this eternal crowning and he has been set above all Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 say wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so here we have as it were the succession who is it that really sits on the throne well it is the Christ of God it is the anointed one that they have rebelled against secondly we see that when we hear the prophet Jesus speaking now we hear the prophet Jesus speaking I will declare the decree the Lord that is Jehovah hath said unto me thou art my thou art my son so we see that the prophet speaks I will declare that decree the sonship the succession we have the sonship of Jesus Christ so the father has declared that I've set my king and now the son's declaration that that he is the son of God and again if we're very careful we can see the eternity in these words I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me it's in past tense it's in the past he has already at some time past said unto me thou art my son this day have I begotten thee and of course if we look at the strict timing of Psalm 2 somewhere in the Old Testament sometime probably after David sometime before the restoration uh, of the return from captivity sometime there physically can we say then that that, that 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 would be a day there well no because if we're going to consider if we're going to confuse ourselves and think well this is pointing to the incarnation when Christ became man well that, that's that's many hundreds of years from then but he's talking about a past uh, an, an ancient I would say an eternal truth it's an eternal day an eternal day the eternal relationship between the father and the son and that's why the son is often mentioned by the father in the New Testament if not always as the only begotten the only begotten there's only one and to beget means to father so there is a fathering that comes out from the father the father always fathers and the son is eternally begotten and that's actually something of a relationship there as we try to understand an eternal God who is a spirit and doesn't have any physical form but has always existed that the son is always being begotten by the father the father is always begetting him and, and, and that intimate relationship has never changed it's not that he has been begotten and now he's separate 
It, it, it's pointing to some of the, the deep truths of the Trinity. And we're not going to mention the Holy Spirit because, uh, at the moment, because this is not a, a, a sermon or a teaching on the Trinity. But we see that here. We have that, that relationship, that eternal relationship between the begetting Father and the begotten Son. And it is an eternal day. Because that relationship has never changed. He's always the begotten, and the Father is always begetting. But we see then as we move on, we see also submission. Uh, Submission, what does he say in verse 8? As the Lord Jesus Christ, we could say the Son of God, is revealing to us, as he always does, that that is his role as the mediator, to speak God's words to us, but also as the mediator, he prays our prayers to God on our behalf. Uh, two aspects of his mediatorial work. But what we see here then, as he's revealing more of what the Father told him, and we know from his earthly ministry, that's what the Lord says, I only speak the words that, my father, that I've heard my Father speak. Again, that's bringing us back to this eternal decree that we're just getting a, a little bit revealed to us now. But we hear he, the Lord, the Son of God, reveals that the Father said... Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Consider that in comparison with verses 1 and 2. This rebellious scum, these people that hate you, I give them to you as your inheritance. I mean, that sounds crazy, of course, until you understand that this is what the heart of the decree is that wicked, sinful rebellion, a rebellious uh, sons and daughters of Adam, some of them are to become the bride of Christ. Some of them are to be saved. And it is a multitude that no man can number. And they are to be saved, but they are saved because they will be submitted. Further glories then of Christ are revealed in the fact uh, uh, of these of these wonders, but how are these heathen ever going to hear about it? Well, they're going to hear about it not only from that very small and and mostly silent witness of the Jews, and there were ones and twos that came in over the centuries. But it is through the cross work of Jesus Christ, the pouring out of the Spirit, the Great Commission going forth, and Acts one and verse eight, that you will be witnesses of me. In, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the four corners of the world. And that's where the heathen are going to be brought in. His gospel promise in Psalm 2, a psalm, a song, a song of the temple in the, in, 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 in the nation of Israel, but saying, but God's going to save so many more through his Son. These rebellious heathen, these heathen that rage, the people that imagine a vain thing will become the people of Christ. They will become his inheritance. They will become his jewels around his neck together with all the believing Jews and he will conquer them. He will subdue them. He will humble them and he will break them and he will remake them into a spotless and blemish-free 
bride and there's so much more that we could say but we won't we'll move on as we come to close we've seen a rebellious mankind we've seen a regal jehovah we've seen a revealed decree and it is a wonderful gospel decree but there is a remaining exhortation verses 10 11 and 12 be wise now therefore O ye kings be instructed ye judges of the earth of the thing this there is mercy and gospel comfort that's now revealed by the Son. Because there have been words of threat and, th- and words of warning, and that's correct. But mercy and gospel comfort. He's very clear, you kings are ignorant. You are ignorant. The kings, sorry, are foolish. The judges of the earth are ignorant. And they should know better. They've had every opportunity to be well-educated, to read the Scriptures, to understand things, but sin has made them mad and blind. And they are interestingly rebuked specifically in their foolish and ignorant rebellion. But they are offered wisdom. They're offered wisdom. Be wise now, therefore they're to become wise unto salvation. They're to have their eyes enlightened. They have their hearts opened so that they are able to do that which they've been created to do, which is, verse 11, serve the Lord, that is, worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Which is very much what we then read in Psalm 130. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So forgiveness is also hinted at here. That they're told to rejoice with trembling. Why? Because they now worship Jehovah with that godly fear, which means that they're able to love the Lord in a pure and holy fashion as they never could before. There is a change that is promised here When they are to become wise unto salvation, they will be able to worship the Lord as he is to be worshipped and what they were created for. But it it does close with a word of wrath also. Verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So we have that fear and that love once again conjoined, brought together. Kiss the Son. Embrace him. Love him. Call upon him. Desire him. So we go from the from the, the from the the, 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 the the vain and raging desires of the sinner. What well, we'll promise through this through this this Messiah, this Son, this anointed one, that there would be the opportunity to have peace. You know the expression kiss and make up is really talking about the heart of what atonement is. And the heart of atonement, actually in the Dutch and the German word for atonement is the word for kiss in the middle of it. To kiss and embrace uh, God is only possible through the atoning work of Jesus and, and they are to be reconciled with God through the Son. Be reconciled with Him. Kiss Him. 
lest he become your judge. Kiss him as your redeemer, lest he become your judge. And you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Because the judge is the Lord that knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's the same Lord. It's the same threat. It's the same warning. But the same invitation as well. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all they that kiss the Son. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. There's only one king. There's only one Messiah. There's only one that has made a decree with the Father. There's only one that has taken the wrath of God and the rage, and, and, well, not, we say the rage, but the wrath of God upon himself. And it's still the same, same God that says to man and woman and boy and girl, even now today, while we're still in a day of grace, come and kiss the Son. Embrace him. Love him. Fall down at your feet before him. Repent of your rebellion and put your trust in him because there are great and eternal blessings for all they that put their trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us briefly pray and then sing our closing hymn. We thank thee, Lord, for these wonderful gospel offers, the gospel arms of Jesus spread open, saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy lading, and kiss me. Oh, to embrace those holy lips, those very lips that have revealed the decree, that reveal unto us the Father. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, Lord, will thou help us, we pray, to not just come and kiss the Lord Jesus once, but to kiss him every day, to call upon him. Oh, Lord, how we are foolish in this regard, so busy when we wake up uh, with, with coffee, with screens, with other things. But, Lord, enable us every day to kiss the Son and knowing that he loves us, for he has caused us to put our trust in him. We thank thee, O oh God, for thy word. Bless it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.